And his father was, you know, happy for him to do that, happy for him to um, go into that sort of life and to do that sort of dangerous um, high wire walking. So um, unfortunately for Alfred Ruffin and for the family, that turned out very tragically with him falling from the, the wire in Geelong. I'm Jen Kelly from The Herald Sun and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Today we're delving into the stories of some well-known funambulists, better known as tightrope walkers. Around 150 years ago, tightrope walking was all the rage. Its popularity owed much to the worldwide fame of French funambulist Charles Blondin, who performed daring and dangerous stunts on his tightrope. Most famously, Blondin crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope while pulling off an array of dazzling stunts in midair in front of a gobsmacked crowd. Today we're talking about Blondin's tour of Australia in the 1870s and the so-called Australian Blondins he inspired in his wake. Most famously, Henry Lestrange, who crossed Sydney Harbour on a tightrope and performed various other breathtaking stunts. To tell us the story, we're talking again today to Andrew McConville, a reference librarian from the State Library of Victoria. Welcome back to the podcast, Andrew. Uh, thanks very much, Jen. It's nice to be here. Now, why have you chosen Charles Blondin and the Australian Blondins to chat about today? Well, I think it's uh, you know a very interesting story and, and I think they were um, pretty um, amazing daredevils for the time and I think it probably reflected a real change in in um, just people's lifestyles really and 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 the capacity for big events to attract big crowds um and i think you know with charles bond and he was able to become world famous in a way that possibly a generation before he wouldn't have been and he was able to do things like tour the world including a, a long tour to australia which uh then um brought out a lot of Blondin imitators there was a lot of australian Blondins who were trying to perform similar feats to Blondin. So that was also an interesting aspect. And it was also, I mean, it was an unbelievably dangerous thing to do, as some of them found. Um, and uh, certainly it was a time before occupational health and safety as well. So, and, <laughs> and that involved some, you know, some sort of funny incidents, but also, and also just, you know, extraordinary things that you can't believe they could actually do. But also there were a couple of tragedies along the way. And take us back to the late 1800s to set the scene. It feels like this was kind of a, a golden age for death-defying stunts and dare de- daredevil performances and, and the more dangerous the better. Yeah, and I think it's probably a, a combination of a number of things. I think it's probably that in the 19th century, the world and people's lives changed enormously with industrialisation. It was an, an enormous period of discovery, you know, geographical discovery, scientific discovery. And I think one of the big things was the development of transport and particularly trains, which meant that people could move. Firstly, cities became bigger because of industrialisation and people could move within the cities and between towns much more easily. So it meant that touring groups could tour more widely. And I think the other big thing was the increased literacy of the population and just it was a golden age for newspapers. So news did go around the world to every little town and it might have taken a while to to get to places. I think it took about three months for Bondon's crossing of Niagara Falls to, to get around the world and to get to Australia. But it did then get to every little place. So people could become world famous in a way that they weren't before. And I think also those big open air entertainments became, you could draw large crowds and therefore they could be quite cheap or sometimes free for people to go to. So it meant that it wasn't just a sort of an opera crowd. This was 
um, entertainment for people. And there's always been, you know, street performers and circuses, but this enabled a much bigger crowd to go and watch these things. And I think there was this idea of, of to an extent, um, conquering or matching nature and also people trying to outdo each other. So the antics became sort of more crazy and more dangerous and more spectacular, I guess, because of that. So we'll talk a little bit more about the Australian Blondins a little bit later. Let's start with the story of Charles Blondin. We know that he was from France. Do we know anything else about his early life? Yes. Well, he was um, certainly took a, a liking to acrobatics and trapeze very, very early. In fact, he was enrolled in a, a school for gymnasts when he was five years old and um, he, reputably he was known as the Little Wonder and was performing from a very early age. In fact, when he was about six or seven, he he reputably performed before the King of Sardinia. And then by the age of 10, both his parents had died and he actually joined a circus and, and performed in circuses for uh, quite a number of years, becoming more and more adept. And then he ended up joining a, a acrobatic troupe, a very famous acrobatic troupe called the Ravel family, uh, which was you know a, a very famous troupe of French acrobats that toured around Europe, but then Phineas T. Barnum decided that they were would be um, pretty successful in America, so he brought them over to the United States, and that's really where um, Charles Bondon was able to come up with the idea of the Niagara Falls Walk, um, and he, with the particular um, group, the Ravel family, he was noted in the papers often as being their most spectacular performer, and that probably encouraged him to think about going solo and doing something pretty spectacular on his own. Now, when we think about tightrope walking, we often just imagine someone simply walking one foot in front of the other, holding a horizontal pole. But the Niagara Falls stunt was involved a whole lot more than that, didn't it? It was just a completely over-the-top performance. Oh, it was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, apart from being incredibly dangerous and and I think that was part of the thing that no one believed that was possible so it did capture the imagination of um of people and and they were able to publicize it Niagara Falls was already a quite a popular or very popular tourist spot and there was transport there so literally thousands of people came in to view this remarkable event some of them very cynical Uh, some of the newspapers were quite um, critical because they thought people were just going there to see London fall to his death, and, and there may have been a few people doing that as well, um, and, and the hotels did very well out of it. He got a little bit of funding from the hotels, but not that much, but it was extraordinary. I mean, he was walking across a tightrope of 340 metres. It was out in the open, so it wasn't controlled in any way. You know, there was wind and weather to deal with, and plus it's very hard to have a rope to be taught at that um, length or in that particular environment. And, yes, he didn't just walk across it. He basically pranced across it and on his first walk he stopped halfway and lowered a rope down to the tourist boat the mate of the mist and they attached a bottle of champagne which he drew up to himself and had a glass of champagne and he continued to um, do these walks across Niagara Falls and and each time um, the tricks he did became a little bit more outrageous and, and presumably far more dangerous. So tell us more about those. There was one where he was piggybacking somebody, wasn't well, he? I find that quite incredible. I mean, this is – and he always said that he would never work with the net because he believed preparing, preparing for disaster only made one more likely to occur – um, probably means the disaster is going to be safer if you land in the net as well. But anyway, he didn't fall. But he piggybacked his manager across. Um, he also did things like he carried a small oven. don't know how he did this, but he carried a small oven across, halfway across, cooked an omelette and lowered that down to the, um, the uh, boat below, the maiden, the mist below, um, for their breakfast. 
Um, he did things like uh, go across in, in a sack. He'd, he'd dance on the rope. He'd lie down on the rope. There was tricks where they had, and, and this, a lot of these tricks became came out of circuses but became common with these big events where he'd have a chair that he would he would balance on the rope. So it just became more and more outrageous. And, and following him, there were uh, other performers who tried to outdo him. There was one called the Great Farini, who was a Canadian who in 1962, he uh, also did the same crossing as Blondin, but he tried to outdo him by instead of lowering a rope to get a bottle of champagne, he climbed down a rope to the Maiden the Mist and had a glass of champagne and then climbed back up. But he did um, have a bit more trouble climbing up than climbing down, I think. So, um, But, yeah, they um, the tricks became quite outrageous and were copied by various performers around the world, um, not necessarily crossing such wide areas, but during their circus and, and uh, performances in open places around towns. So Charles Blondin was doing this for years and years, and by the time he got to Australia, he really wasn't a young man anymore, was he? No, no, he was 50 years old when he came to Australia. So, um, yeah, so certainly uh, not the age he was when uh, he was doing the crossings of Niagara, but he was still, um, you know, an extraordinarily capable um, tightrope walker or funambulist, and uh, he... um, you know, performed uh, great tricks in Australia. So he arrived in Australia in Brisbane um, in the middle of the year in 1874. And again, there was enormous interest in this because he was a world figure. He's a world famous figure. Um, and he started these performances at the Brisbane Botanic Gardens and then to Sydney and then to Melbourne. And he performed in Melbourne first in uh, November in um, 1874. There's about 3,000 people there. And it was in an area that is. Uh, on St Kilda Road, sort of where the domain is now, it was opposite, I think, Victoria Barracks. Um, it was just at a point near, near Government House, but I think Government House was in the process of being built at that stage. Um, and as I say, had 3,000 people there. He checked everything very carefully. I mean, he was, you know, a great professional and he obviously knew the dangers of what he was doing. So he was there during the day making sure that the ropes were all uh, to his liking, and he was concerned about the weather. Fortunately, the weather did clear, so he was able to come on. He'd wear, you know, um, costumes, uh, different coloured costumes. Uh, he came on with a marching band playing below, and he danced along the rope um, in tune to the marching band. So even though he was 50 years old, he was still doing his old tricks. He piggybacked the Australian agent across the rope, who, um, again, I don't know how happy the agent was with that, but it obviously uh, went down very well with the crowd. Um, he'd pretend to fall but actually land on the rope. He'd then have a bit of a rest just lying on the rope. So he was doing, you know, a lot of those tricks he did do in Niagara, and he wasn't. That wasn't quite as high, or but it was still, you know, still going to hurt yourself very badly if you fall off there. So um, he, he did a number of those open-air performances. He did performances for charity, and then he did a long run at the Melbourne Opera House, he then went to South Australia, came back to Melbourne and performed again, so enormously successful. And his final, final performance wasn't until 24th of March, 1875. So by that stage, he toured Australia for nine months. So, um, you know, that sort of gives you an idea of just the um, extraordinary popularity he had right around the world that he could come to Australia, you know, some 25 years or, um, or 15 years, sorry, after his performance at, at Niagara and still draw, you know, sell out crowds for for nine months, uh, which is quite amazing. And then he's headed back, what, to North America? Yeah, and he toured Europe and, and he toured actually, I think he had as a suggestion that that in late in the 1870s, he, like he'd become a very wealthy man through this, but um, he did um, lose a bit of money and, and needed to perform or maybe he just liked performing. He continued to perform around Europe and, and uh, other countries, uh, United States, 
up until really the 1890s, up until not long before he died. So he um, died in his um, in his 70s, about uh, when he was about 73. But he performed almost until his death. So part of that, I guess, was you know that his financial position waxed and waned a little bit. But I think also he was a a born performer from when he was five years old. So. A bit like ageing rock stars, it's hard to give up. <laughs> it's just pretty extraordinary to think that someone who's done something so dangerous as a profession has made it to their 70s in that era. And it, it doesn't appear like a number of them had serious falls, um, but it doesn't appear as though he um, was seriously injured. He he must have been, you know, quite a, a, a you know freakishly talented and, and obviously had been training all his life, but still, you know, it, it's just... Uh, a remarkably dangerous pursuit. So it, it's amazing he could perform for that period of time, and and still be performing, still be fit enough to perform. You know, at seventy years of age, and without any major injuries. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment to hear about the Australian Blondins who emerged in his wake. Hey, I'm Felicity Harley and I host Healthy-ish, where we chat to experts, influencers and people in the know from around the globe to arm you with the knowledge to make healthier decisions for your mind, body and soul. I think if we're going to be focusing on health, like sleep is probably the biggest component oh, of that. I, I think sleep is the cornerstone. Like choose the harder option because I've never woken up and gone, I regret that run that I went at 4am. I've never done that. Search for Healthy-ish and Extra Healthy-ish wherever you get your podcasts. Now, tell us about some of the Australian blondins who emerged in his wake. Yes. Well, probably the most famous and, and the most interesting was a chap called Henry Lestrange. Um, and he came from pretty obscure backgrounds. It's very hard to find out anything about his early life or even his later life. But certainly he came to prominence originally with a group called the Royal Royal Comet Variety Troupe, who were uh, advertised themselves as bicycle and trapeze. So, uh, trapeze artists doing, um, you know, death-defying stunts, um, touring around different states of Australia. He was from Melbourne, but he toured various states, and he was managing that group at one stage when they were doing a tour in uh, Launceston. And then, in the wake of the visit by um, Charles Blondin, he then fashioned himself as the Australian Blondin and started to perform bigger and bigger events as a solo artist. And he performed at the domain in Sydney and he was drawing something like two or three thousand people a night to that. So, you know, very successful. And the newspapers had this to say. They said that the Australian Blondin has not attracted quite so large an amount of public support as was accorded to his Gallic namesake. Though it is difficult to imagine why this should be the case. For Mr Lestrange performs all the feats of the original Blondin and with equal address and agility. And he did do like a lot of those tricks, and they were probably things, as I say, that came up through circuses and, and street performers. Um, but he did the, the same sort of things that uh, Charles Blondin had done. So, for example, he, well, he wandered out in a suit of armour. He was going forwards and backwards. He was doing bicycle riding. He was um, walking across with a, in a sack, so he supposedly couldn't see where he was going. Often they'd put... Um, wicker baskets on their feet to do the walk. So, again, you know, quite outrageous uh, things. Um, but uh, he was very popular and this actually led to, you know, a very dramatic uh, event when he also decided to do a very big uh, stunt, which was walking across the Middle Harbour in uh, part of Sydney Harbour. So um, that was pretty well organised actually because he was able to monetise that in a way that perhaps – uh, Charles Bond that hadn't originally monetized the Niagara Falls 
uh, stunt or the Niagara Falls walk, he actually, um, with his agent, organised boats to take crowds to the particular point where he's going to walk across um, part of Sydney Harbour. And so he was able to sell tickets for that. And even though there was a lot of people who um, attended the um, particular event without getting tickets, he still was able to um, sell a lot of tickets. And there was something like eight or 10,000 people to to view that particular event. And it was pretty spectacular because he was walking 433 metres and he was something like 100 metres above the water. So um, a very remarkable walk. And, and again, with these walks, because they were – uh, in a natural setting, and the ropes were enormously long. The ropes weren't taut in the way that they might have been in a circus. So, therefore, you were in effect walking downhill and then walking uphill. So, more challenging. Um, mm-hmm. But he did do that successfully. He didn't quite do all the tricks on the rope, but he did successfully do that um, to great acclaim. Uh, I mean, there were, I mean, there's always going to be some uh, criticism, and there was criticism of that as well from. Uh, some of the newspapers who felt that it was a, a little bit, um, and the same thing happened with Blondin, that in this great, beautiful space, people should have been looking at the scenery rather than looking at someone doing these silly antics. But in fact, the public loved it. Um, so it was very, very successful. Um, he then continued with various other uh, stunts that weren't quite so successful. So he then turned his hand to ballooning, which was, again, a a new sensation and and quite an expensive thing to do. So he would have poured all his money into that. And he started with an attempt at a a, a ballooning trip in Melbourne, again, from an area just near uh, on St Kilda Road, just near Government House. Um, And he went up in a balloon from there, um, but the balloon went up fairly steadily and then shot up very high, very quickly. And then suddenly people realised that the balloon was looking a bit odd. The gas was coming out of the balloon. He did have a parachute above the balloon, which um, was pretty wise of him actually because the balloon then started to come down with the parachute fairly gently and then suddenly it plunged uh, down to earth and people were exceptionally concerned that he would be dead. But he had fortunately landed in trees near near Government House um, that, uh, in the, the domain there and he – Miraculously, was okay. I mean, one of the things, he had a lot of accidents, but he never seemed to hurt himself very badly, which was amazing. Um, but he didn't give up ballooning then. He then went to Sydney with his balloons and he had a couple of successful flights, some test flights, and then he was organised another flight from the domain there and had a huge crowd. I mean, there was some estimates of up to 10,000 people. The balloons took ages to um, fill with gas and... The crowd got very, very fractious. There was a lot of people described in newspapers as ruffians who were um, closing in and, and, and demanding that he do something. The balloon, so he decided, well, he didn't think it was quite full enough with gas, but he needed to do something, so he decided to try to take off. It went up about you know 20 metres or so and then just came down the ground because the basket was too heavy and the balloon hadn't been inflated or didn't have enough gas in it. So given that the crowd was turning fairly ugly, he then – as the daredevil he was, took the basket off. He looped up the ropes underneath the balloon, sat on those ropes and took off just skimming, literally just skimming across the um, the rooftops. Uh, the gas was escaping, so he was getting very drowsy. So he had to sort of lash himself to the ropes. Mm. The balloon then came and, and crashed into a house. Um, he again was able to cut himself, roof, climb, uh, cut himself loose, climb down the roof down to the ground and, again, remarkably unhurt. But um, as they were trying to lower the balloon down, 
uh, somebody quite reasonably opened the window to find out what the commotion was and they had a uh, candle light in the house and the candle and the gas uh, came together and caused an explosion mm. and there was a fire. Um, no one was uh, killed, but there were some people who got burns. There was huge crowds descending on the area, so there were people who got knocked over. Um, Mr Lestrange was fine physically, but his reputation uh, had taken a bit of a battering from that um, and he uh, really only came to public notice once more when he tried to revive his career uh, by doing another walk across, trying to replicate or a similar thing to what he did uh, in the um, uh, in his walk across Sydney Harbour. This time he was going to uh, ride a bicycle across a, a wire across Sydney Harbour, the same area, Middle Harbour, where he had uh, done his great walk before. This was a much much lower, which, as it happened, was very lucky. It was only about. 10 metres above the water, and there's about between 700 and 1,000 people, depending on the estimates, come to watch that. So it was fairly well publicised, but nowhere near as popular as his previous performance at Sydney Harbour. Unfortunately, this time, he got halfway across, lost his balance and went into the water. He was okay. He was able to swim to a boat, but it was very humiliating. He'd arranged for a few performances um, to be um, done, but prior to the second performance, the ropes... Uh, that were holding his wire mysteriously were cut um, or frayed. It's hard to know. Anyway, he cancelled the um, performance. He's, when he fell in the water, there had been various headlines like um, Blondin fiasco and things like that. So people were quite critical because he'd had a few disasters. And then there was a suggestion from a fisherman who'd been fishing nearby that he saw um, uh, the uh, Lestrange's helpers actually cutting the rope so that he lost his nerve or he didn't think he could do it or he was humiliated, whatever. It's unsure what exactly happened, but um, he was turned up occasionally in sideshows, but certainly the great heights he got to, both, both um, literally and um, uh, in terms of his fame, uh, he didn't ever reach those again. And he basically disappeared into obscurity. The last we sort of heard of him was when he was actually in, a, in an accident in um, Fitzroy in Melbourne in the in the mid eighteen nineties. He wasn't badly hurt, but there was a court case about it. It wasn't wasn't his fault on that occasion, and it wasn't a, a trick he was doing. He just happened to be hit by a cart that was going across the road when he was going across the road. But he did really disappear into obscurity, so we don't really know when he died. But he was a a great star for a while, and certainly an amazing daredevil. But things didn't quite go his way. Mm. It's a perfect name for him, isn't it, Lestrange? I wonder if that was his real name. Well, I wonder too because, I, I mean, there are, you know, there are people called Lestrange. It is a surname, but it was a very French name because it was Henry or Henri, so you'd think that might have been an element of the Charles Blondin in that. Mm. And it's very hard to find anything about him. I mean, he he's Henry Lestrange during his performing life, but uh, I couldn't find any records of his birth or and I don't think anybody, anybody has. There are suggestions he was born in Melbourne in you know, um, the 1850s or, or um, a little bit earlier, but he is very obscure. So it makes you think that perhaps he did change his name because that, um, even though that could be a name that someone could have, it also sounds like a pretty good strange uh, stage name as well. Mm. Mm, for sure. Now we talk about ballooning and obviously ballooning is a mostly safe sport now. Uh, so when we say that, people might imagine it's much the same as it is today. But if you look at the photos, you can just see how incredibly primitive it was. It looks like what kind of a, a beach ball just wrapped up in a, in a net with a basket underneath. I, I think so. And I think, you know, now obviously they can control the height and everything by flames. But there, I think they just filled basically a balloon with gas. I um, mean, it just floated off. And 
I'm not entirely sure how you were supposed to come down or control it. I think probably you were able to let some of the gas out, but it was, in, I mean, gas was an incredibly dangerous thing anyway. Um, but yeah, it was certainly pretty much uncontrolled. And that was probably much more of a daredevil thing, even than walking, you know, the tightrope, because it was um, totally new. And it was something that really was uh, not easily controllable. And, and yeah, so he, he discovered that, you know, to his cost a couple of times and it was quite remarkable that he, he actually came out unscathed from those particular incidents. Mm. Now, there were a few other Australians who styled themselves as the Australian Blondin after that. Can you tell us about yes, that? Yes, well, probably the, the most famous of those was a chap called James Alexander from Geelong and he um, didn't ever do those huge stunts like a you know, crossing of Sydney Harbour or, or anything like that, but he was very much a, a performer who performed for basically um, his whole adult life, really, um, and performed at circuses and sideshows, but he was pretty successful. He performed all over Australia and, and he did have uh, a couple of falls, mainly there to do the falls he had were to do with equipment. So they would have poles, they'd set up in vacant land, they'd have guy ropes holding the poles and, and occasionally those guy ropes for one reason or another would um, not hold. And so he had an, a couple of accidents like that where he came down from about, you know, 10 metres or more and he did, he was concussed and, and, and injured but not to the point where he stopped performing. But he did have one particular tragedy where he was working with, he was only about 18 or 19 himself, but he was working with a 13-year-old boy, a chap called Alfred Ruffin, whose father was happy for him to apprentice as a tightrope walker, you know, happy for him to do that, happy for him to um, go into that sort of life and to do that sort of dangerous um, high-wire walking. So um, unfortunately for Alfred Ruffin and for the family, that turned out very tragically with him falling from the, the wire in Geelong. They were performing in Geelong, in open ground in near the centre of Geelong, and the idea was that they'd walk out from either side and shake hands and then walk back. Um, that was what the boy had to do, and he did that. Um, he did seem very nervous, which is understandable, but on his return, he actually fell and was killed, so a very tragic situation, mm-hmm. and there was an inquest into it, um, and there was various opinions given at the inquest, including the father who who spoke really for James Alexander and didn't find any fault with him. Um, but it's amazing you'd have a 13-year-old boy up there without any safety equipment. And mm. James Alexander wasn't punished for that. There was a suggestion from the coroner that perhaps they should have mattresses or something to break their fall. Uh, but in fact, that didn't happen because um, various other of the Bondans, including James Alexander, did continue to have a few falls. He was performing in uh, Ultimo a, a year later, in Sydney, and again, one of the poles fell because one of the guy ropes had given way. But he and his um, fellow performers felt that a rival had actually cut the guy rope, which is an astonishing thing to do. Um, James Alexander was then hurt, you know, reasonably badly, but did um, was able to perform again and continue performing. But you know, obviously, there was a lot of those groups around, and it wasn't unknown for them to try to sabotage each other, which is pretty awful. But he did perform right up until. 1918, and in, um, well, actually, December 1917, he was uh, performing uh, in Bathurst, I think it was. He was 58 or 58, 59 years old at that time, and this time it wasn't the guy rope. He just overbalanced and fell. Uh, Again, he was hurt, but they didn't feel it was that seriously hurt, but the the effects of it did linger for a number of months, and about three months later, he did die. So, I mean, he died to an extent of, of those injuries, but 
Um, he was certainly a trooper. He, he lived his whole life doing trapeze work. And there was actually another Australian Blondin as well, wasn't there? Yes. Well, I think there was there was quite a number of people who called them this called themselves the Australian Blondin. But probably the next most famous was a chap called Alfred Rowe, who called himself Onzalo, the Australian Blondin. Um, and he did have a few falls. He was around about in the same time, the late 1870s, the early 1880s, in the wake of Charles Blondin's trip to Australia. Um, and again, he was performing in circuses uh, on high wires, uh, doing uh, tightrope walking and doing tricks like riding bicycles, things like that. In 1883, he did uh, fall from uh, a, his bicycle trick and fractured his upper leg. So again, a bad injury, but again, he came back. Uh, but he was involved also in another um, quite tragic incident where he'd set up his his high wire act in vacant ground in Sydney. I mean, they didn't ever get permission for this. They just basically set up. He had a, a rudimentary fence around it, but um, kids, local kids got in and, and were looking at it. This is prior to performance. And I don't know what they were doing, but one of the poles came down and actually struck an eight-year-old boy and killed him. So that was, again, another tragic incident. And again, there was a, an inquest into that, as you would imagine. Um, but again, it was found that he was found not guilty, although he was given a severe warning by the uh, the coroner to ensure the safety of his material. He did claim that he'd been doing this for you know some years and he'd always been uh, working very safely and, and these sort of things hadn't ha- happened before. But it's probably an indication of the um, you know the, the lack of regulation, the lack of any standards with these things, and the amount of little sideshows that there were around, and the amount of money people would make out of those. I mean, Alfred Rowe did continue for a long time. He actually bought himself a, um, uh, a, a an item for um, to travel around uh, America. Around, sorry, he actually bought himself a merry-go-round, which he took around to fairs and to shows all around Australia for the next uh, forty years. So he again continued in that sort of circus life for the rest of his life. We'll be back after this short break to hear what happened to the Blondin craze in the end. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? (laughs) Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. And what happened eventually? Did the Blondin craze just kind of fade away? It did sort of die out, and I think it probably um, was partly because, I guess because there was a few too many accidents, and I think probably (laughs) once those big high-wire things like, you know, walking across Niagara Falls, walking across Sydney Harbour had been done, uh, they probably weren't necessarily done. Again, I think there was probably a tightening up by authorities too as as people were getting injured and and the public might have been getting injured and just the, the, the sort of things that occurred that, um, governments would have wanted to take a little bit of control of. I mean, I think also things like the theatres became more um, a much broader appeal and, and people like magicians uh, in the late 1880s, 1890s and the early 20th century, uh, international magicians were doing huge tours in concert halls and there were concert hall uh, events that had a much wider appeal. So I think those big open-air events uh, continued for a while, but I think they probably had had their day really by... Um, the late 1880s, and there were still circuses, there were still people walking on, doing tightrope walking there, but the big events, I think, died out a bit. And it's a combination of, I think, 
uh, governments not wanting just vacant land, having anybody setting up on vacant land and doing shows. Um, also, um, issues with uncontrolled crowds and, and, and the danger of these sort of things. All of those conspired, I guess, to uh, mean that the, the Blondin craze probably was over by getting towards the end of the 19th century. Now, we know that Charles Blondin walked the tightrope over Niagara Falls and we know that Henry or Henri Lestrange walked over Middle Harbour in Sydney Harbour. I wonder if any of these tightrope walkers ever walked over the Yarra River in Melbourne? Um, actually, I'm not entirely sure about that. There were various stunts at the Yarra River. Harry Houdini um, uh, did his escape from his... Uh, uh, straitjacket from the, in the Yarra River in, in the early 20th century, but I'm not too sure. It might have been reasonably difficult with the Yarra and it may not have considered, been considered dangerous or spectacular enough. So I, I'm not aware of any uh, anybody doing those sort of things on the Yarra. Mm. Now, there are some pretty amazing pictures available of, of Blondin and, and some of the stunts and, and Lestrange's stunt at Middle Harbour. Are these from the State Library's collection? Yes, we do have some fantastic uh, photographs of, of, of both Blondin or uh, images of both Blondin and of uh, Lestrange uh, uh, doing their, their uh, stunts. So basically, uh, there are images of Lestrange looking all of 100 metres above the water uh, crossing the um, Sydney uh, Harbour, the Middle Harbour. There's also a wonderful illustration from the Illustrated Newspapers of his balloon um, collapsing uh, in Melbourne. Um, and there's a number of pictures of, of him uh, performing as well on his bicycle and things like that. And there's pictures of Blondin as well performing in his um, uh, wonderful uh, outfits. And there's also a wonderful caricature of, of one of the um, Victorian politicians uh, on a tightrope um, just like Blondin, with um, two uh, um, conflicting uh, areas of, of concern for the government, and he's balancing those on his on his long pole. So uh, Blondin also made it into political commentary as well. But they they're easily findable on our catalogue. If you put in Charles Blondin or you put in Henry Lestrange into the catalogue, you will find you know some wonderful photographs, and and um, there are is other material that we hold from about those two gentlemen. Mm. So any listeners who want to have a look at those pictures, you can go to the State Library Victoria website, which is slv.vic.gov.au, and we might also pop some of those pictures into the story that accompanies this episode at heraldsun.com.au. I thought I might just mention one other thing, if I might. I just, um, In terms of talking about those big events, one of the most famous 20th century um, high-wire um, performers was Philippe Petit, who famously walked between the Twin Towers in uh, the 1970s, but he also, in 1973, uh, without any permission at all, attached uh, wires to two of the pillars of Sydney Harbour and walked across <laughs> Sydney Harbour. So um, he was not quite recreating what Lestrange did, but was doing a similar sort of thing. And in, 1980, in 1986, he also recreated uh, the walk of Charles Bond and across uh, Niagara Falls. So there, um, even though the, all those things occurred 100 years ago, um, not in the not-too-distant past, there has been um, great high-wire walkers um, trying to replicate those acts. Mm, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming and sharing a wonderful story again with us today, Andrew. Uh, thanks very much, Jen. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by John T. Burton and edited by Andrea Tees-Evanson. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email me at inblackandwhite at heraldsun.com.au. Any clarifications or updates to stories will appear in the show notes for each episode. And to get notified when each new episode comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed.